Hello and welcome to the second instalment of Sean Keaveney's Not So Simple, the podcast collaboration between myself and the cerebrally endowed burgers of Pan Macmillan. In this series, I get the privilege of picking the brains of some of the most inspirational thinkers around, in the vain hope that I might glean a few insights that might help us all rub along a bit more effectively, understand the world better and become despotic globe-domineering billionaires. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not an optimist. In fact, the glass is not half full or half empty in my world, but kicked over the rug and on fire. So, with that in mind, here's my guest today, Caroline Webb, the author of How to Have a Good Day. An economist and former McKinsey partner, Caroline shows readers how to use recent findings from behavioural economics, psychology and neuroscience to transform our approach to everyday work in life. I'm going to read the opening lines of the first practical chapter of the book that's called Choosing Your Filters, which is about editing the way that you experience the reality that unfolds around you each day. We so often cruise through our busy days on autopilot, rolling from task to task without pausing to stop and think. We work hard and do our best and we're glad if it all works out to our liking. Sometimes luck is on our side and sometimes it isn't. That's just life, we might tell ourselves. But I'd like to make the case that we can do better than that, thanks to an important aspect of the way our brain makes sense of the world. The fact that we consciously notice only a small selection of what's actually happening around us and filter out the rest. Because the things that get through the filters are strongly influenced by the priorities and assumptions we take into the day, that gives us a huge opportunity. It means that with a few minutes of mental preparation involving a quick check and reset of those priorities and assumptions, we can shift the way we experience the day, making it more productive and enjoyable. This mental preparation is a process that I call setting intentions, because it's about being more intentional about your approach to the day. Before I talk about a quick daily intention-setting routine for you to try, let me explain why the reality we experience is so dependent on our filters. As we learned in the Science Essentials, which is a section at the front which lays out a few big themes of the book, our brain's deliberate system, responsible for reasoning, self-control and planning, has only so much attention to give to our complex world. So as we go through the day, our automatic system prioritises whatever seems most worthy of the deliberate system's attention, while screening out anything that doesn't seem important. This filtering happens without us being aware of it, and it's central to our brain's ability to cope with the complexity of the world. But this selective attention also leaves us experiencing an incomplete, subjective version of reality, one that may or may not serve us well. Obviously, it's a good thing that our automatic system filters out things that are truly unimportant, Otherwise, we'd be obsessively counting carpet fibres or getting mesmerised by the ingredients of our lunch making it hard to get anything done. The downside, however, is that even potentially useful things can be tagged by our automatic system as unimportant. For example, if we're intently focused on checking our messages, our automatic system might decide it's not worth diverting some of our attention toward understanding a question we've just been asked by a colleague. When she raises her voice and finally breaks through into our consciousness with a Hey, did you hear me? we might apologise and swear we hadn't heard her before. And we'd be technically correct. We didn't hear her. Not consciously, anyway. 
Now, we can't switch off our automatic system's filtering function. By definition, it's automatic. But we can adjust the settings by being more proactive in defining what our brain sees as important each day. If we do that, we can affect what our conscious brain gets to see and hear. It's one of the most powerful ways to steer our day toward the reality we'd most like to experience. On autopilot, what does our brain treat as important? Our automatic system uses several selective attention rules to decide what's important enough to bring to our conscious attention and what should be filtered out. If we can understand how some of those rules work, we have a better chance of hacking into the system and adjusting its settings. The first thing to know is that if we've got a task that we're consciously prioritising, our automatic system will make sure we see anything directly relevant to that specific task, and it will tend to blank out anything that seems off-topic. Anything? Surely, you're saying, if something striking cropped up in front of us, off-topic or not, we'd see it, wouldn't we? Well, an enormous amount of research suggests we might not. Take this recent study, for example. Psychologists Trafton Drew and colleagues at Harvard's Visual Attention Lab asked some experienced radiologists to look closely at a bunch of medical images to spot abnormalities. The radiologists were given a stack of genuine lung scans to work with, some of them with sadly genuine nodules. But the last image was different. It showed a picture of a gorilla inserted inside the lung. The researchers were praying wry homage to the original gorilla stroke basketball experiment described in the Science Essentials. Astonishingly, 83% of the radiologists failed to spot the gorilla, even though the image was 48 times the size of the average lung nodule. Even more remarkable is the fact that the Harvard researchers used an eye-tracking device that showed that most of the radiologists looked directly at the gorilla, and yet they still didn't notice it. It's not that they saw it and discounted or forgot about it. Their brains simply didn't consciously register the ape. In other words, because they weren't actually looking for it, they didn't see it. This type of selective attention is what scientists call inattentional blindness. That is, we see what we've decided merits our attention and we're remarkably blind to the rest. So the priorities we set for ourselves really matter. We don't even have to be deeply focused on a task to encounter inattentional blindness. In fact, as soon as we have something on our mind, we become much more attuned to anything related to that concern and less attuned to everything else. In one study that was conducted by psychologist Rémi Radel in France, where mealtimes matter, volunteers who'd been forced to skip their lunch went on to see food-related words more clearly and quickly in a word recognition test. That is, the hungry people notice the word gato more readily than bato. If the researchers had taken their volunteers out on a boat, they might have seen bato even faster than gato. Our automatic system will generally prioritise information that resonates with anything that's top of mind for us. Even our attitude can play a part in setting the perceptual filters we apply to the day. Joseph Forgus and Gordon Bauer, professors at the University of New South Wales and Stanford respectively, conducted an experiment designed to put volunteers into a slightly good or bad mood by giving them random positive or negative feedback about their performance on a minor test they'd just taken. After that, the volunteers were given some descriptions of fictional people to read. Those descriptions were carefully calibrated to be neutral, 
the volunteers could easily interpret the subjects as being either energetic or chaotic, calm or boring, depending on their reading of the text. And what did Forgus and Bauer find? That their happier volunteers were significantly more likely to see the people described in a positive light compared with the volunteers they deliberately put into a funk. And it's not just interpersonal judgments that are affected by our mood. Another research team found that sad people perceived a hill as being significantly steeper and saw scaling it as a less pleasant prospect than those who were feeling more upbeat. So it really is possible to get up on the wrong side of the bed. Our perceptions of the world can be strongly influenced by our starting point, good or bad, because our brain's automatic system makes sure that we see and hear anything that resonates with our conscious priorities, our top-of-mind concerns, and even our mood. Meanwhile, it downplays everything else. Now, let's think how we can apply this knowledge. Suppose you and I were sitting in the same room, participating in the same conversations. My priorities, concerns and mood would shape my perceptions of what was going on, while yours would shape yours. As a result, it's entirely possible that I would miss things that matter to you, while getting hung up on things that don't register with you at all. We're each living through our own private reality, a reality shaped by our hard-working automatic system's attempts to allocate our attention to the right things. So what particular reality would you like your brain to pay a little more attention to? Take your next meeting. If your primary concern is to get your point across, you'll probably find yourself noticing every instance of being interrupted and every moment of airtime that others take up. You'll probably lose some of the thread of the conversation without realising it because you'll be focused on your desire to tell people what you want them to hear. You're not being willfully closed-minded. Your automatic system is just efficiently prioritising information that relates to your state of mind. Turn all this around and the reverse is true too. For example, if you instead decided to focus on finding new opportunities for collaboration or on hearing useful input from your colleagues, chances are you discover more of that. As we change our intentions, our brain's filters change and the facts can appear to change with them. That was an extract from Caroline Webb's book, How to Have a Good Day and I have her here in the studio with me now. Good morning, Caroline. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Are you? Did I hear you correctly that you are st- relatively recently off a transatlantic flight? <laughs> I am, yes. And I'm still having a good day. That's that's pretty <laughs> impressive, isn't it? Because it, we'll come on to that a little bit later on, but the physical aspects of, of our life impact very, very largely on the kind of mood we're in and the Absolutely. kind of day we're going to have, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Let's hope it's uh, a positive outcome for us both. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with a bit of young, actually, because uh, I love this particular quote from him until you make the subconscious conscious it will direct your life and you will call it fate and i've I've always i've always seen my brain as a kind of dilapidated supercomputer (laughs) with very old uh, (laughs) software on it but you know that's running all the time and i think i'm in conscious control of it but i'm not am i well no most of what's going on in your mind is actually subconscious you know most of what we do from day to day is actually on autopilot so the bit of our brain that we're conscious of is the bit that does things deliberately but most of what we're doing I mean you're breathing right now but you're not doing it deliberately you know there's all sorts of things that you do each day brushing your teeth finding a way to to work this stuff is happening at a subconscious level it's just that there's much more that we don't realize is happening subconsciously and once we understand the rules of how our subconscious works 
it actually starts to point the way to towards having a more productive time and a happier time of our of our lives because you've had a lot of extremely responsible positions in huge <laughs> companies, you know, I don't think I, I'm rigging the pudding with that, you know. Uh, but what, what kind of things are you noticing about people's lives, these high-functioning people uh, who ostensibly have fantastic yeah. jobs and great positions? What, what, were, what did you start to notice that, uh, about all of their lives that, you, that made you want to act and, and try and make a difference for the better for them? Well, I noticed that however good the job is that, that people are in you know they have good days and they have bad days and actually a lot of people feel pretty worn down by even the loveliest of of jobs you know day to day there might be tensions there might be stresses they might be sort of concerned about you know whether they're being recognized and there's a lot that goes on that actually leaves us at the end of the day potentially feeling more drained than energized by the life that we're living and i think you know it just became clear that there were really predictable things that people could do really quite small tweaks that people could make in their lives that would make a big difference to how they felt and that's where the science is helpful because it really helps you home in on you know these tiny tiny changes so in the extract i was talking about for example the fact that our brain mostly filters out a ton of stuff that goes on around us And if we understand that actually the way it works is whatever's top of mind for us will drive what we then notice. Well, a tiny, tiny tweak is to notice that you're in a bad mood and to say, you know what, if I'm in a bad mood, my brain is going to make sure that I see everything that confirms the world is a terrible place. If I decide to look for three good things in the next five minutes can be really tiny it could be someone helping someone with their bag it could yeah. be someone's wearing a nice hat it doesn't have to be big then you put those things top of mind and then your subconscious says your automatic system says you know what she apparently wants to see good things so i'll make sure she sees more and that's how you know you wake up the sun shining and everybody seems to be amazing or you wake up in the morning and you spill coffee in yourself everybody's a jerk you know it's not your imagination you know you you get into a cycle because your brain pays attention in a very very predictable subconscious way once you know the rules it doesn't take much to reset changing the filters yeah changing the filters exactly a lot of it a lot of the the sort of the meat of the book comes from i mean you know you, you're talking about bringing different uh, sort of ideas together behavioral sciences psychology and neuroscience but but this this idea about the two system brain is key isn't it yeah uh, you've just been talking about it the defense uh, you know tell us a little bit about that so obviously We've got the conscious brain uh, or the deliberate brain where yeah. we have to concentrate on something very specific that yeah. we're doing. It's what you're using to speak to me right now, yes. what I'm using to listen to you right now. It's, the, yeah, it's like your sensitive professor. It's super smart. Um, it's, uh, it thinks about the pros and cons of everything. It weighs everything really carefully, perhaps overthinks things sometimes if left to itself, uh, gets tired quickly, gets overloaded very easily. Um, and that's why... You know, the automatic system is like the hyper-efficient assistant. Right, exactly. And it's so, (laughs) you know, makes quick decisions, moves fast, super efficient, uh, sometimes a bit knee-jerk, a bit black and white in their thinking. I just just, decided. Just want to get it done. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Follows simple, simple, simple rules. Like, if she's done it before, she'll do it again. You know, just uh, if if this is top of mind for her, she must want to see more of that. It's just the simple, simple rules. And so, you know, you couldn't get through the world without both it's not like you know some people 
have you know a bigger deliberate system and some people have a bigger automatic system we all need both yeah. um, but you can be more thoughtful about how to create the conditions for your sensitive professor to be at its best and to help the assistant understand what the right rules are <laughs> yeah I, I love that it's, it's fascinating to me really because you, you, the other thing that came to me whilst I was reading the book was uh, advice given to me by um, you know sort of elders of, of in my life and I, that I discounted at the time mm. but little things that like having goals is important yeah. you know like, and it's something I never realised until I was much older that actually that kind of stuff's really important to, to visualise what you want either out of a situation or in, on, a, on a more macro level out of your life Yeah, these things are really important aren't yeah. they if you, if you don't have a goal you kind of the day kind of gets away from you yeah. you've not really achieved we've got anything. a small amount of conscious attention if we're not really deliberate about deciding where we want to put it then yeah it, it's it's a shame because you know that that is that is what we've got to play with each day and one of the reasons that goals help us is that it helps to focus our attention on the right stuff so you know when you look at uh, studies where people are doing things that are quantifiable you see that uh, having a goal can increase your performance by i mean there's one particular study i have in mind 16 percent uh because you you just know what you're going for and so your attention is less likely to be distracted and then of course there's all the science that says actually there are certain types of certain ways to articulate your goals which which make it even more likely you'll achieve them so for example it turns out that we're more likely to achieve a goal if it's framed as more of a good thing rather than less of a bad thing so instead of saying i must not eat the Mars bar, I must not eat the Mars bar. You're more likely to eat healthily if you say, I will eat, I don't know, yeah. choose your quinoa. favorite quinoa or whatever. I will eat quinoa. I tonight. won't eat quinoa, right. by the way, under any circumstances, <laughs> even if it's the last food on earth. I just need to Get make that clear. Get stuck in your teeth. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. But I see what you mean, though. So that's, again, the subconscious coming into play of, of prioritizing and putting things that are important to you right at the top of the pile so that that's the filter that you're looking through that you know yeah. you can focus on yeah. those particular things and it adds on the the second big science theme of the book which is this discover defend axis yeah. so your brain is sort of always looking out for threats to defend you against and uh, rewards to seek out and discover and when your brain's more focused on threats that's what i call defensive mode and the tricky thing about it is that when when your brain is uh, focused on threats there's and it's launched some kind of defensive reaction like you know, which we typically think of as fight or flight, mm. is actually a freeze response to fight, flight, or freeze response. It turns out there's less activity in your prefrontal cortex. Is that because the blood's shooting around different parts well, of your body to get you away from the woolly mammoth? Or to, yeah, sort of back to the idea that you've got a limited stock of attention. Mm. So if your attention, if your mental attention, and indeed actually blood and glucose is going to power a very basic defensive response is actually less left over for more sophisticated thought the sort that goes on in your prefrontal cortex so if i'm having a discussion this is an important one with somebody in my life who i've always had a combative relationship with mm. and in the past it's always ended in argument and dysfunction uh, and it seems to me that every time i get in a conversation with them I start breathing shallower. Yeah. I start getting a little bit panicky. Right. I can feel the cortisol building up in my bloodstream. Yeah. That is, it's at that point where I'm at my least intellectually right. efficient. And Which so, is exactly when you want to be, of course, on your game because you're thinking this is a slightly difficult conversation so I want to be really thoughtful and clever about how I navigate mm. it. Just at that point, your brain is actually saying, you know, no, actually, I, I'd like you to be defensive. Yeah. Thank you very much. And and that going back to the goals, that's why framing your goal as more of a good thing rather than less of a bad thing if you say less of a bad thing it's just enough to put you just slightly on the defensive it's the 
the defensive system is very, very hair trigger. So starting to think a bit negatively about something you've got to avoid can be just enough to put your slightly your brain slightly on defensive, which means that your performance drops. You're more likely to do extraordinary things if you're framing uh, framing the goal as something which feels rewarding. And that brings us on to discovery mode. There's, there's yeah. defensive mode and discovery mode. So yeah. could you explain what discovery mode is and how we get into it and stay into it? Well, discovery mode is where your brain is more focused on the rewards than the threats of a situation. And, you know, if you think about your average day, you've got a ton of stuff that you know, often doesn't go brilliantly, it doesn't go perfectly as planned. I mean, it can be as small as, you know, dodgy commute. And, you know, as I've said before, your your defensive system is hair trigger. It takes very little. Anything which which challenges your sense of self-worth or your social standing will be enough to make you make you feel slightly defensive. So, I mean, you know, maybe someone cutting you off mm. in traffic or cutting you off in a meeting. Like, it doesn't have to be a lot. Just feeling slightly out of your depth, actually, with a with a with something that's on your plate. You know, it could be a family situation. It could be a piece of work. can be enough. So it's really helpful to know how to get your brain more focused on the rewards in a situation. So one example is... You know, we find it inherently um, rewarding to learn things. You know, if you put someone in a brain scanner and you give them the answers to questions that they've been asked, their reward system lights up, the brain's reward system lights up. And, you know, I think that's possibly why game shows are so popular, by the way. We just like knowing the answer, finding out the answer. So it's super helpful when you're feeling stressed to say, okay, what can I learn from this? It's a very small nudge towards focusing on the rewards in a situation that might feel otherwise a bit, you know, a bit terrible. As soon as you say, okay, what can I learn from this? You start to shift your brain away from defensive mode towards discovery mode. And there are a ton of little techniques like that to, for getting your brain more towards the discovery end of the, uh, of the axis. And uh, you know, the book is full of those sorts of techniques. No, it's, it's chock full of brilliant ideas. I mean, and and it's, it's such a shame because... Well, it's not a shame because I suppose the whole point of this podcast is to point people to the actual tome itself, which is what (laughs) I hope we're giving you a sort of a little taster of it. But things that that surprise me and don't surprise me at the same time Mm. include how much of a colossal impact things like tiredness uh, Mm. have on you. For instance, I do uh, an early morning breakfast show and have done for 10 years and I'm utterly exhausted all the time. Can't imagine. What kind of things, what can you do in a practical way to to sort of help you move into that discovery mode all the time, stay at the deliberate mode and, and sort of, you know, if you can't get nine hours sleep and you can't do an hour in the gym every day, can you do smaller things to help you? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, so the third big theme of the book is the mind-body loop and how much the way we treat our body doesn't just have a long-term effect on you know, how we age and, and you know, whether we're able to, able to stave off dementia, but also actually has an immediate impact. So it turns out that even doing a tiny bit of aerobic exercise um, will boost your mood and your focus immediately. Now, <clears throat> I'm not a gym bunny. So, you know, I read this literature and I feel like some of your listeners might feel you know, yeah that's all very well but I can't get to the gym today mm. in fact you know I really can't remember the last time I went to the gym so I became very very interested in looking at the evidence around tiny 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 interventions like how little exercise do you have <laughs> to the do smallest amount? what's the smallest possible <laughs> amount um, and it turns out the evidence is really really encouraging on this it turns out that if you do 20 minutes of moderate activity each day 
you're going to get most of the cognitive and emotional benefits uh, that exercise brings. I'm not, it's not going to transform your body yeah. in terms of the way it looks, but in terms of your mind, you're going to get a lot of the, the benefits that doing more exercise is supposed to give you. And you know, even, even better, you can break it up into chunks, so you don't even have to do it all in one go. Wow. So a few brisk walks, like where you're just picking up the pace a bit. If I, so, if I work in a particular large office, just one, one sort of circuit of the office, round the water cooler, yeah. sit back down, that might solve. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that absolutely. Sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to demonstrate this and I'm in a, um, a workshop or a, I'm giving a speech, I'll actually get people on their feet. And they're obviously, this, you know, everyone's like, oh, don't do this. But I do. I get people on their feet and I'm, you know, I suggest that people do five star jumps uh, or jumping jacks, as I call them in the US. And everyone's like, oh, really? <laughs> and then we do them. And obviously, we end up laughing. But then I say, okay, how do you, how do you feel? And everyone's like, oh, right. Yes. You know, it does make you feel different quite quickly. So I'm very, very big fan of the evidence that suggests that you don't have to get nine hours sleep or eight hours sleep or seven hours sleep um, to, uh, I should say, you ideally should. And I love mm. sleep and I need sleep. But the evidence on naps is really encouraging. So again, the evidence that, okay, you might not, you might have a small child, you might, you know, be in a position where you're working shifts and you can't actually get the kind of sleep you'd love to. But knowing that actually a 15 to 20 minute nap, or even less micro naps, NASA has been experimenting with really, really very short naps, can again, boost your, your mood and your focus. So I'm very interested in what's the smallest possible thing you can do. And it turns out just the tiniest amounts of of exercise the tiniest amounts of taking a moment focusing on your breath you don't even have to kind of do a long meditation to get you know a mindfulness moment yeah. benefit so you know the evidence is really really encouraging for those of us who are living leading busy lives for it's, sure it sounds great that's why a lot of people in my stand-up gigs when they wake up after a couple of minutes they seem to be in a better mood than they were when they were asleep <laughs> I, I think that and another thing there's so many things in the book so many wonderful little tips but another one that that seems like a, a good thing to, to to finish on is if you if you have to make a big decision please don't do it when you're tired or hungry i suppose that's oh, just no it's kidding. just it's just not yeah. something that's a good idea is it I suppose. yeah the longer it is since you've ha had a break the poorer the quality of your decisions yeah. and that's been shown across all sorts of um really uh sort of light-hearted settings like you're in a uh, shopping mall and you're kind of trying to buy uh, a suit or something and you know also parole decisions you have a bunch of judges trying to decide whether to give prisoners parole the only thing that makes uh, a real difference to whether the prisoners get parole statistically is how long it is since the judges oh have taken God. a break why because their deliberate system thinks things through weighs things up gets tired though very quickly and when it gets tired automatic system super efficient oh let's just make the simple decision simple decision probably safer to just decide they're still guilty good god right so how do we usually take decisions when we're in meetings it's at the end when yeah. everyone's exhausted so it's really helpful to think okay well let's be smart about not running this meeting for 90 minutes or two hours could we take a short break come back everybody's fresher and better able to make a good choice it, this is the thing we're going to leave you with is <laughs> rest and being good to yourself it's not an indulgence, no. it's a necessity yeah. for moving on with your life. It's about life. helping your brain function at its best. And I think 
with that, uh, we, we, we have to wrap this up and we have to go uh, into our individual oxygen tents for 90 minutes and then for a, a deep tissue massage, if that's all right with you, <laughs> Caroline. That's pretty great. <laughs> fantastic. Well, Caroline Webb, um, the book How to, have a, uh, How to Have a Good Day is fantastic. It's uh, available in paperback right now, ebook and audiobook from all good retailers. But I want to thank you very much for coming in and for talking to us about it today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you learned something useful or enlightening. My thanks again to Caroline Webb. Next time, we'll be talking with Lisa Feldman Barrett, a world-renowned neuroscientist who will be informing us how emotions are made. So that's it. Once again, How to Have a Good Day is available from all good and disreputable retailers now. We'll see you next time on Not So Simple. Bye for now, and have a great day. You've got no excuse not to now, have you?